probably use that as well as like that cathartic process of, you know, expressing myself and focusing and sort of mindfulness even as a child. Because you're directly in touch with it when you're younger. So it's probably quite easy for me to channel that out into what I was doing. And then later in life, you sort of apply layers to yourself where you think you can interpret or you start looking for external sources of like inspiration and things like that. When in truth, you kind of want to come back to that point of being like quite open and childlike in your experience and sort of interpretation of that experience. Yeah, I lost the thread of where we were going with that, but uh, the, oh, the, the West Coast. I'm Emily Kyle and this is Local. This is a conversation with Hobart nomad and painter. Carl Ross. This episode was recorded in August during Carl's residency at the QBank Gallery. Normally we start at the beginning. Uh, what was your childhood like? What was your family like? Um, so the beginning... I was born on a Persian rug at home in Falls Creek, New South Wales. Are you lying? <laughs> yeah. So in the beginning there was a lie <laughs> and it was my birth. No, that's the truth. Um, I was a home birth. We had a midwife. Um, it was a good birth. Yeah. Came out and pissed on my mum. Nice. First action in this world outside of the womb. Um, and then sort of carried on doing that for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. Yeah. So, yeah, born at home in Falls Creek in the house that my nana built. Wow. Um, so that's Falls Creek sort of on the east coast down near the Shoalhaven, not the ski town Falls Creek. Yeah, and then so I sort of grew up in that area sort of on the east coast, New South Wales, south of Sydney, living sort of between there and Sydney where my dad lived up there. So my parents weren't together. They split up right around the time I was born. Um, mysteri- Is that because mysteriously, you because I was, on your mum? Because I was born. Yeah, yeah I think right. that was the turning point. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, we lived quite poor and I would say rough in those early years. Um, yeah, so I grew up in like a single parent household with my mum. And had really great friends around me, lots of adventures, a lot of trouble at school. I just couldn't maintain um, concentration mm. there. Like I, I was that sort of distract, distracting kid in the corner. Well, the distracting kid that ends up getting put in the corner. Yeah. Just a big fucking waste of time, my mm. time and theirs, I think. So that system, it didn't really agree with me a lot. Essentially all my report cards would be like, shows tremendous potential. However, it just needs to focus. Mm. And so I was focused elsewhere. Um, and my, yeah, generally just daydreaming a lot. Used to come up with really powerful sort of narratives and kind of lies, but sort of these stories about my dad and my parents and like how I lived outside of school is like, you know, dad lives on an island out in the ocean with pet dolphins, like pretty far out stuff. Um, obviously not true. My dad was just a, a young guy probably with, with a heap of problems who was a musician and he's an artist as well. So, like, yeah, him and my mum were just young and torment, young, tormented souls that had a kid. So they did well, I think. Jeez. Generally. Jeez. <laughs> <sighs> but I was nurtured. I was loved. So, you know, as long as you've got one person in your life when you're young, like in your, especially in your formative years, like a primary caregiver, you're lucky. Mm. A lot of people don't have that. And I certainly had it and I certainly had love. I was just also subjected to other extremes. So was it just you? Did any siblings? I've got a half sister. So essentially a year later, my dad got someone else pregnant. She had my sister, Frances. Um, Her mother's name's Robin. So my mum's name's Julie. My dad's name's Mark. So, yeah, essentially in the space of a couple of years, my dad managed to get two pretty intense women pregnant who both had a child. I feel like I've heard this story before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he fucked up. <laughs> um, so that's pretty funny because then essentially my, those years were just sort of tales of my mum and my sister's mum just sort of fighting with my dad about child support, <sighs> all of that stuff, um, and him sort of trying to 
handle it. Mm. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was, I don't know, tough maybe at times, yeah. tough and rough. But like I said, I was also, my mum always made time for me creatively, especially like paper mache and painting and always had, I was never like, well, it was probably, it was before the years of iPads and stuff like that. So like to distract me probably and to keep me, my fidgety hands moving, she'd have, she'd put me down on the ground and I'd have paints and things like that around me. So I was just most of the time doing that. Yeah. So painting becomes this um, relief thing, this distraction relief thing. Focus, yeah, focusing a little mm. bit, probably cathartic, probably at the same time I was like whatever extreme violence or things like that that I was witnessing pretty regularly, um, I'd probably use that as well as like that cathartic process of, you know, expressing myself and focusing and sort of mindfulness even as a child because you're directly in touch with it when you're younger. So it was probably quite easy for me to channel that out into what I was doing. And then later in life you sort of apply layers to yourself where you think you can interpret or you start looking for external sources of like inspiration and things like that when in truth you kind of want to come back to that point of being like quite open and childlike in your experience and sort of interpretation of that ex experience, I think, mm. which is what I've done very recently, I think. What did little Carl's drawings and paintings look like? They were cool. So my <laughs> mum my kept a lot of the stuff that I used to draw, like in my school books, like probably books that I was meant to be doing math and English and things like that in. And she's made this sort of, I call it a shrine. It's not a shrine. It's just like this giant laminated collage of all those pieces. And they're cool. There's like just heaps of yin-yangs and waves and surfers and monster trucks and like really raw kind of naive drawings and poems that are really poorly spelled. And, <laughs> and again, it's, it's, it's pretty much exactly like what I'm working with now. My spelling still sucks. Um, and yeah, and when I draw stuff like that, I feel it feels really nice, you know. Yeah. You remember like you remember drawing like Stussy symbols and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the mm -hmm, that S. Mm -hmm, yeah. That little like burst of endorphins you'd get when you'd line it up properly oh, and it's complete perfect. and complete it. Oh. That and same with the yin yang. So those like sort of symbols of our childhood, they're there in this like tapestry thing that she's woven. Yeah. Which is amazing. really lovely to see. Um so yeah, that going back, that's like just that love and time mm. that she's given me outside of, you know, that's like beyond her own world and part of it and yeah. And she must be incredibly supportive of what you're doing now. Yeah, like she's <laughs> pretty hands-on. <laughs> like I have to gently guide, like she can she can get quite upset sometimes or she's like, oh, she's like, I just you need to paint, you need to keep painting. And like if when I was living in Melbourne, I was sort of working at essentially an office job and just sort of rinsing it on the weekends mm -hmm. to sort of offset that experience. I'd have Monday yeah. to Friday, I mean, and then that it was sounds just, like the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah, exactly. It's the direct opposite. <laughs> like, yeah, great bars and food and friends and company and partying is great, but to a point. And then what's outside of that and what's sustaining that is important. And, yeah, that job sucked. Um, it was just bad. And, like, so she, I, I could feel this urgency coming from her around sort of, like, you need to be painting. You need to, be like, you need to essentially, like, shift your paradigm a bit of, like, what mm. you're doing, what, you, what you're existing in, which is fair enough. And so I did that. That's why I'm sort of in Tassie now. Yeah. And you've been, you're in Hobart? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sort of nowhere now. So I was living in West Hobart when I came down. And, yeah, and then I was accepted into the residency and sort of just moved out of the apartment I was in and just sort of stored my things in a shipping container on my mum's property and came up here. So I'm pretty free on where I'm going to return to. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like there's a spot. Waiting. No, I don't have a home waiting. Well, I can go live with my mum and stuff and mates because all mm. my mates, you know, own their own 
houses in the moon or in Glenorchy like everyone else does. But I think I might try and carry on this feeling of sort of freedom and privacy around like my, my process. Mm. I've just really enjoyed that here, having the space to work. Yeah. It's an incredibly stimulating environment around here though for, for me, especially like I love rocks and minerals and exposed landscapes and that have been a sort of, well, here especially like where you can see the hand of man sort of upon the landscape, mm -hmm. the changes, and there's that sort of deep odd beauty to it, especially mm. when you see nature forming around it or mm, clawing its way back clawing its way back um yeah th so that's interesting and, and yeah and more so now towards the end of this residency i'm getting more out of just the individual homes and structures and things like that yeah yeah especially you know we were talking about leo kelly's place mm. uh do you want to talk about your attraction to his work yeah so i remember seeing his work Years and years ago, really, it's something. I, I mean, it was just it was part of some. I can't even recall where and when, and it was just that sort of like it was just quirky religious iconography sort of stuff. Was it in Mona? Potentially. Um, Lindsay, I'm gonna say Lindsay Sears. Oh, now it's um now my brain's going blank. Uh, but her installation for Unconformity in. 2016, I think that ended up going to Mona. Yeah, I've, I've saw, I've seen that. I believe it might have been actually. Before. I don't know. I heard about him before then. Somehow, I don't know when or where. So that's it. That that his house has turned into like the sort of coup de grace of my um, attention and focus towards the end of this residency. Um, so before I came up, I have a friend, Riley, who sort of reminded me of it. He's like, oh, you've got to check out this guy's, like, his house that he's hand-built. It's got this weird church in it and sort of <laughs> stuff like that. I think there's a couple. Yeah. Well, there's – so that that's what I thought, but anyway, we'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were looking at it. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Definitely need to check that out. And so it turns out it's just up the road from where I'm staying, as is everything here. Yeah. It's just around the corner. Like, mm. I can walk to anything. Um, and, yeah, and just seeing it, like, the perspective you see it from, from different angles in the town, it's just it already, there's just something really alluring about its design. It's all handmade. It's all salvaged. So it it's an oddity in a town that is an oddity already. Mm. So it, it's really. A little Russian doll situation. Yeah, it's full on. Like, there's, like, all the houses here are incredibly charismatic, strange, partially heritage, weird things that are either getting eaten by rainforest or slowly, I don't know, turned over by baby boomers. Mm, yeah. Um, I was having this conversation, um, I think it was with Josh Santospirito uh, when he was here. He was talking about how he really loved the patchwork quality of the houses. And I think that that essentially comes from, I mean, this is one of the cheapest places to live in Australia. So what happens is you have these people that, that live here or come here and they don't really have the kind of money that people in Melbourne have or mm. um, elsewhere. And so you just kind of pick things up, usually, you know, corrugated iron because it's light and plentiful here. <laughs> it's bountiful. And it just, <laughs> and you patch, you patch everything up. You sort of say, well, this is what I need to fix right now and this is what I have and so that will patch that. Yeah. And then you move on, you know, in a couple of years, oh, fuck, the roof is leaking again, you yeah. know, patch it up. So, it, yeah, it's... um. And I like that because, yeah, this is it's one of the, yeah, the cheapest places to sort of get property in Australia and it's probably these are the places people like myself, you know, people who are carrying the burden of like a hex mortgage already coming mm. out of school... And, and sort of don't want to, like, yeah, suffer and work horrible jobs that pay well, which I've done, <laughs> to sort of just have a mortgage. Mm. So realistically, these are the places I feel like that, that we can buy. Mm. Unless we've got, up like, someone fronting you your deposit, like 60 grand or something. Like you're just insane. You're just not getting a place. Mm. Well, these things might change, but... That's sort of how it is at the moment. 
Well, now that we're in this, you know, another economic depression, I, I doubt that we'll see much change anytime soon. Well, hopefully it just busts the, ho- the housing market, just comes down a bit, but who knows? So, yeah, there's that the oddity of the houses here and it's, so they're just full of nuance, obviously, mm. which I love. I, and, and yeah, so Leo's house sits in that and it's, from the outside, it's incredibly interesting already. <laughs> like yeah. it sort of draws you in. And then, so, yeah, I went through it the other day. So I was put in contact with Michael who lives, the, there's a weird boundary situation that happens on that block. It's literally half the buildings on the site, sort of the boundary runs through them. So Michael's purchased the other side and then has realised that he owns sort of, you know, like a slice of like half the house kind of situation and like a couple of the sheds. So luckily Michael's a cool bloke that Mm. he's a writer and he sort of lives between here and the southern region, like down in Signet and stuff. And he's just been maintaining it and looking after it. So mm. he's, he's created his own little shed that he lives in. It's a tiny little space, very functional. And then, yeah, he's been just acting as sort of like a caretaker and living there at the same time and sort of looking after it. So I was going into it because you hear all the rumours about the house and Leo's life and who he was sort of like, you know, he was sounds like he was he was on the spectrum of autism a little bit. So he was socially strange here, especially in this community, I've heard. Like he was just... I mean, obviously I I never met him, but I do think that there is a bit of... From living in Queenstown for a couple of years, it's the community here is very much everyone knows everything about everyone. But that's, you know, the nature of small town communities. And I think that if you're a private person, the reaction to that is, oh, that is other. Yeah. We, we can't have the same access to information about you that we mm. have about everyone else. So therefore you're strange. You're not yeah. a part of this. Yeah. You know? And he was definitely strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that well, strange compared to the norm, but like and so when you hear strange and odd and like these sort of descriptive terms and the stories about the house is like I start building a picture in my head naturally and you think it, they're like you know people are like oh it's twisty and turny it's all odd angles and small in places and so a bit like Alice in Wonderland sort of vibe and there's a and there's a dark room beneath it as well where he developed his film <laughs> it's all very sort of spooky and then I was expecting like it to pervert. be quite essentially quite creepy yeah but it was the complete opposite, the experience of sort of the whole place. It's just like quite wonderful and felt lovely and stable underfoot, like the really? building itself, the, just the, yeah. So when you look at it on the left, it looks like that's the chapel thing. They've like this sort of pitched roof. Mm. looks like this, he's created like some kind of vaulted ceiling. But that's actually an observatory, so yeah. he had telescopes. So I was assuming that was like the chapel thing. But there's a little shed that looks like almost like a tin sweat lodge further down towards the road next to the fountain he made. Um, And that's his little chapel. So there's like, there was like a little shrine there. There were some of his paintings in there as well, but they're gone. Um, And it's got a little fireplace. So I feel like it must've been a bit of a sweat lodge vibe or something's going on in there. Cause it's (laughs) tiny and there's a pretty solid little like fire in there. So I don't know if he was in there praying and sweating it out, <laughs> what he was getting up to, but he was in there a lot apparently and, like, that was his, yeah. So there was there's just little compartments on the property like that that would facilitate his life. Mm-hmm. So, like, that was just sort of a place of worship. And then the first, another shed we went into with the same kind of vaulted ceiling, we were just sort of looking at it. It's, like, quite small, maybe, like, three square metres or something. And I'm just sort of looking at the roof and sussing it out. Like, I think this roof turns like on an axis kind of thing. <laughs> and he handmade this mechanism because like, um, Michael was like, oh, this is an observatory. So he had a telescope in here. And then like part of the roof opens up. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, well, if I'm like, 
you wouldn't have an observatory where you only look at one patch of sky. I know some people do that, where they mm. just document one section of sky and they only look at that. Then I was looking at it, I'm like, I think this thing moves. And then you could see this handle you unscrew. And then we unscrewed it and you can literally like shift the whole roof. That's amazing. And he's handmade it like himself. And like, obviously it's not smoothly running and like it's quite hard to move around, but it does. It's really cool. Oh, <laughs> oh that's incredible. So stuff like that. So you start looking at what he's made like on his, I'm assuming he wouldn't have had too much assistance making much of this stuff. No, well, that's what, um, I'm sure it is Lindsay. That's what she, she had said in her artist statement, I loved Leo's creative make-do that went beyond necessity. Everything was reclaimed in his architecture but also completely reinvented, like those amazing red gloss branches under his ceiling in his living room. Just she, I think she was particularly taken by how uh, unusual the yeah. architecture was. How and just that it was something that I, I'm sure I get the impression that he did it all himself. Yeah. So, and with that effect, you look into something or look at it, then you look into it. Mm. And when you look into it, you see again that word nuance and stuff. It's just it goes in and in, and you just see his touch and his like that sort of ingenuity just mm. at play all the way through it. Like even the door handles, just everything in there. Yeah, everything The safe, he's made a safe out of wood, <laughs> like his own safe. <laughs> it's a really cute little, he's, yeah, it's, it was quite secure with like a proper lock and stuff, but it was made out of wood. Yeah, I mean, all you'd need is a good axe. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and that, obviously that's open and empty. I think the church got their hands in there as well. Mm. Um, I did hear some town gossip that he had a bit of a falling out with um one of the priests yeah i don't think they were devout enough for him (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think they were kind of pretenders oh the train's back i haven't had the train um for a really (laughs) long time (laughs) i've never heard a train these these microphones are really good yeah (laughs) it's picking up the train in strawn oh no that's the wilderness one yeah there it is. Get out of the way. Yeah, it hasn't been running for so long. Actually, I really rely on the train because, um, you know, say so you've had a big night and you're a bit hungover. Yeah. The train will uh, blare its horn at 9 a.m. and then again at 1 a.m., at 1 p.m. Cool, usually. So you can sleep until 1. And so I'm like, oh, God, one's too long. <laughs> that's, that's the second time. Uh, yeah, it's, we should probably get up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the place sounds amazing. And so you've been focusing some time and attention uh, painting his place. Yeah, more so than any of any of the other paintings that I've been doing here. Um, it's probably the I usually I'll go out. I've taken it quite lightly and sort of um, I'll just go out and soak it up. Essentially, I might mm-hmm. take a few photos of places, like if I'm going on hikes or things like that. Um, I'll sort of document a bit and then I'll refer back to the photos. Same with the buildings. Um, I don't particularly want to walk around taking photos of people's houses and stuff like that. It's enough just to see them and then mm. sort of just soak it up and then go back and sort of just work with what I've seen. But with Leo's place, I've actually studied it a little bit more. Like I've gone back a couple of times just because I want to, for me, it's in such a, it's in like, it's in the balance of that place. I think it could either be become this very immensely valuable part of art history in Tasmania and be looked after and cared for, or it could just go under the gavel and end up being bulldozed, you know, mm. quite easily here and turned into someone's shed. Because um, there's mixed reviews, locals, some locals don't like it. They reckon it's an eyesore, which, you know. That's, which is hard to understand. Yeah, well, I just... Like, Especially because there are a lot of houses here that are a bit. They look the same. Like worse. Yeah. In worse repair. It's like there's plenty of land here and plenty of ramshackle old buildings if you want to go knock stuff down and rebuild. Like I don't know why you particularly want that. I think the benefit of that weird shared boundary running through the buildings and Michael owning half of it and and, and wanting to keep it as it is should hopefully deter people from wanting to share that kind of situation. Mm, you would hope so. It's um, 
Yeah, I, I think that for a few years there's been interest in the property. I think there are a lot of people that really want to hold on to it and, and keep it safe and keep it in the town. Um, yeah, I've been I've been talking to people. I've been speaking with Helena and a few people. I know, like, unconformity, you don't want to go out and start buying houses and things like that. No. It's not a, It's not the way. Um, however, I think it wouldn't take too much to sort of rally a core group of people to chip in, you know, financially and a bit of their time and just sort of yeah. at least just like you can't, you wouldn't be able to insure the place. You wouldn't be able to live in it. Um, mm. Probably by law you wouldn't even be able to show people through it. I don't know. Maybe you could at least have people visit in sort of a gentle way. I think like I think it's a place people want to visit and see and experience. So if you could facilitate that in a way that sort of respects the neighbors and the space because it's quite a private area. Um I I'm asking because there might I think there's a few other people with the same kind of experience of it that I've had obviously. So we don't need to run separate campaigns for the same agenda. Yeah. So I'm just I want to communicate a bit with people here that have been here already. I've already probably done what I'm doing um, and to see if, we can, if we're on the same page because if it's a matter of like, you know, a few thousand dollars like yeah, to protect it just for now like and then to sort of go from there and let Michael stay there and continue to maintain it and, and then maybe, you know, at least just be able to show people around it and stuff. I, it, is, it is pretty incredible because when we're, describing what the space looks like, at least from the outside and the inside. It is it is a very strange place. It's um, very unusual. And that's so much how people speak about Queenstown. Yeah. It's strange and alien and unusual. And so there's something that is so typically Queenstown that really represents the, the interesting qualities of this town to be let go, that would be a real shame. I think so. So that's why I'm, I'm putting extra time into this painting and not relying too heavily on my memory with it. I'm actually sort of trying to accurately represent the colours. But didn't you say earlier that you wanted to get back to that childlike, yeah. loose place that you feel like that's the Well, that was there. Be? It was there in the beginning when I constructed the, the when I was putting down essentially the foundations of the painting. I was sort of, I was quite raw with it. I was just sort of referring a little bit to my memory and photos I've taken, but I was sort of just sketching it out as I sort of saw it in my head as well, like my experience of it. So I was like, you know, that'll sort of, I don't know, objectify a little bit. I was just do something to it to make it more my own and sort of connect myself mm -hmm. directly to it. And then I did that and I stepped away from it. I'm like, oh, this looks exactly the same as the house. Because <laughs> like my wonky <laughs> lines and sort of cartoon-esque like approach just like boldly sort of defining it and, and it's, it's like it just looks like the house it's like it's how he's built the house <laughs> um i just want to get things like if he's made if there's a touch to it like a particular window that's got a you know the, the same like some kind of green in the window like mm. there's that you know that green plastic corrugated sheeting mm, yes his little chapel bit in the house where he's built his pews and things like that there's like a sheet of that across the window with it's just like this really lovely old green color, like yeah. super tacky, but <laughs> lovely. It's really hard to recreate with like the paints I have. So I've just been sort of working on sort of representing that. Mm. Just the little bits, there's little, little pieces of it, sort of particular windows that might have a certain type of curtain. Cause these are things that he's installed, he's put there and they've remained, but they're starting to slow. I think it's slowly, degrading you know it needs to it needs probably a bit of maintenance as much as you can with that kind of place but you need to fix leaks keep possums out of there like just basic stuff where it's going to slowly get eaten up mm. like everything yeah else. in a way that you're not changing what he's done but doing the best you can to preserve it yeah especially mm. if you know and like god forbid it gets knocked down or something like mm. that I want the painting to sort of remain and have that sort of yeah, be true. energy that it had. And Michael's seen the painting. 
and he likes he likes how heavy it is. He says a lot of quite a few people have painted it, but they've done it usually in like watercolors or like light mediums, like gouache and things like yes, that. Yes, yes. And it hasn't kind of captured that sort of weight of it as well because mm. it's quite a heavy. It's heavy in its construction because because yes. it it's built by the hands of one man with scraps. If you look under the house, you open up and look at the foundations. It's literally a pile of rocks that he's put there. Oh, wow. Like chunks of concrete and rock from the landscape. And then he's just sort of built all of the stumps and stuff coming off those, like just heaps and heaps of different bits of wood, like connected to each other and built off this rock, which sounds precarious, but it's Mm. a heap of materials. (laughs) Because when you're, when you're, hodgepodging something a bit you sort of go a bit extra because mm. you don't really know like you're not doing the right structural yeah, frames make it as strong as possible. so it's like i'm going to keep adding poles to this thing and so it definitely doesn't move and so it's a bit like that and even yeah like the sheeting on the outside and stuff like that there's that weight so that's come across a bit and so it was nice to have michael see it and sort of it's it's pretty it's a pretty impressive painting honestly um, I've seen a couple, uh, Maxine Brown, uh, I'm not sure what she is, but I've seen her um, work of Leo's Place and um, another artist, Jenny, um, I'm blanking on her last name at the moment. She's she's not, she's back in South Australia, but um, it is, it is, what you've done is quite impressive. And I think too interesting when I'm looking at that painting, next to the paintings that you've been doing uh, at the beginning of your residency. They're definitely, we spoke the other day that there is, um, they're very two-dimensional, they're very flat, mm. whereas the uh, painting that you're doing of Leo's place, it does it does have more dimensions. It does feel like it's, it's jutting out just as his place seems to jut out and then curve back in and jut out again. Yeah, I'm really loving that because even the background in the image, like the big blue sky, sort of above, that's representing sort of above Queenstown. And I mean, even to me, that looking at that, there's some kind of it's strange because it feels like there's some kind of religious quality in that blue. The way that you've done that blue, yeah, it's that's that's more that's it's sort of intentional. It's that idealistic blue sky mm, with clouds and which is so beams of rare, beams yeah. of light but when it does happen here it's, it is it's, surreal it, yeah and my first impression of that was the first day i came here it was completely it was clear skies unbelievable so it was beautiful and so God when you come into queenstown down. and you've got the sign there and the plaque and stuff mm. on the back of that sign there's actually words inscribed on it oh, really? that, that, and then it mentions the big blue sky like above queenstown Sort of really? thing, I've yeah. It's, I can't directly recall what it says, but in that rusting sort of iron or whatever yeah. it is in the back, there's yeah, there's a an inscription. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, have a look. It's really it's always nice to look at behind things and suss them out because that's a nice little touch. And yeah, there's the mention of the blue sky. So that first day was probably my first and only taste of it for what two weeks. Then it rained for two weeks straight after yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. That so yeah, that's that's present. So I I like that. So that's the whole thing is you know Leo Kelly's house in heaven. <laughs> that's you. That's me. <laughs> yeah, and so like that's obviously present in his work, and a lot of that sort of uh, folk arty kind of religious stuff. Like I love the old work of like just like Reg Reg Mombasa. And like Mambo and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yes. like Australian Jesus at the cricket. So it's like just those images. And then this one is definitely obviously connected to like those old Mambo, like the houses with the wings. Like yes. sort of, it's that kind of vibe. It's, it's quite an obvious reference. Mm. I just wanted to take it a bit further though. Like, so. Have you seen, um, there's two works specifically of Leo's that really stand out to me. Um, it's the one of, I just saw it recently, um, yesterday and it's, I didn't understand it when I first saw it, but it's the, it's, um, the devil yeah, over the, ocean beach. Yeah. The big, the comet thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. And then there's a little, there's also a, um, 
Jesus hanging from the cross that he made. This, and it's it's very folk arty, but in the best in the best way. Yeah, because it's it's not he's not taking religious iconography and symbolism and things like that. He's like he like he's living that shit yes. <laughs> like in a. Like in the house above every doorway, there's like Jesus and Mary handwritten on little notes and like stuck above each door. There's a like rock he's in it like, that he found that he believes was given to him uh, from uh, maybe Joseph and Mary that he, you can see that there's a face in the rock and yeah. he believes that it's Jesus's face that was gifted to him. Yeah. And it's, he really... Yeah, he's really in it. There's this um, in the artist statement, uh, I'm sure her name is Lindsay. She um, And I like to believe that he was. <laughs> yeah, because she was talking about, I mean, the whole the whole body of work that wasn't just, a, I don't think it was just about Leo's work. It was, I think that that installation was called Suffering, but at the time she was, particularly interested in uh, psychosis and schizophrenia and how that uh, presents, I yeah. think, maybe creatively. Uh, but she had said in her statement, um, who's to say that Leo was suffering from psychosis rather than having divine encounters? It's a fine line. He told me he had met Mary and Jesus many times, particularly by the fountain in his garden. And I... I baptised myself in that the other day. You didn't. <laughs> because you can turn, yeah, of course I did. Why wouldn't I? Because we turned it on, because you can turn it on. You just have to connect a hose. <laughs> and it's just like, he's literally got a, a hose pipe that goes from a tap at the house and it just runs underground and up and it just sort of spurts out the top. I'll show you a video of it. It's that's quite funny. Amazing. So it's like this crude kind of. <laughs> and that's where he's the fountain. Yeah. And, and so it would run into this sort of shallow bowl at the bottom of the fountain and there's a bench there that's his bench it's like painted this really intense blue um and it looks like you can't help but have your feet in there so it feels like he it's quite a, like a, he's in it yeah. he might have it turned on and he sort of literally has his feet dipping into the fountain and it's right next to that little like sweat lodge shrine vibe place of worship. So maybe there was a little combo there. Maybe he was going mm. in, sweating it out, talking to Jesus and then coming out and talking to Jesus again but just cooling off. I mean, is there really much of it? My mum says all the time that she's an avid gardener and she says to me all the time that she found God in the garden. Mm. Is there really that much of a difference between someone saying that and thinking that really believing that you're communing with Jesus. Yeah, well, all you need to do is take away what your idea of God is or exactly. what the idea of God is that's been given to you and, like, the term, like, God or Jesus or whatever it is, whatever label it's been given to sort of personalise it or give it a face. Mm. It's just a feeling or a sensation or an experience of something. And, yeah. Do you feel closer to your idea of God when you're at Leo's house? Do you feel closer to Leo? Yeah, definitely. Well, you can't. You're like you're inside his creation. Yeah. His house is his. I, I believe is his greatest work because it's to, it's his lifetime. So it's just everything about it is kind of connected and special and held him. Mm. Like his armchair. Like he's, he's he's he built his own armchair. The bed. Every every aspect. Nearly. I think maybe like there's. The only things that were in there that he obviously didn't make, there was like a, there's a little old fridge, a little oven, um, and a chest of drawers with like three drawers that are really hard to open in the bedroom. I think nearly everything else in there, like even his like laundry where he would dry his clothes, which would get the sun for most of the day. It's an old hubcap with like coat hangers that have been like sort of wired out of the holes of the hubcap so you could hang individual pieces wow. off this hubcap and it's stuck to the roof and everything's painted in. Yeah, it's just, It yeah, definitely makes all. you think of that, you know, that he wasn't just repurposing but reinventing. 
I mean, who, who thinks of that? Yeah, or like plastic bottles cut in half and painted different colours, which I'd like to, I wish, I wish you could speak to him and find out about those because so in the chapel thing, there's like one side there was a painting hanging and there was a light next to it and that's got a red, like a bottle painted red. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, there was another painting and that bottle was painted green. It's like red light, green light. And it would be nice to understand. Well, I'd like to have seen what paintings were there. So it looks like they were permanently there. Like they weren't, it wasn't something that would be swapped out. It was something that had been placed in there. And what the connection is with like a red light, green light, it might just be obvious. It might just be like go stop or, you know, whatever you associate it with. But there's another one in the kitchen, in the ha- in the main house. and. Well, I mean, you've associated with it with red light, green light. Yeah, that's my it interpretation. Could, and I hate interpreting stuff. It would have been nice to know what. Yeah. Because that, was, that must have been a very special place for him, um, that place of worship. So yes. to have... And it's very small, so whatever's in there, it felt like it would be has to be functional, and special, and sort of. So it'd be yeah, I would love to know what that the green light and the red light's for. Maybe if you spend some time meditating in there, yeah, they'll let well, you know. Well, Michael's using it as a storage. <laughs> oh no! In a in a nice way because Michael has a very limited space. Yes. So it's just got like, you know, a couple of suits and and a rolled up um. <laughs> Oh my God. No, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, so because it, it's watertight. So Michael has made like a lot of those buildings water, like sort of as best he can, like mm. to keep the water out of the roofs and stuff. So he's done that, but he's also stored some of his stuff in there. Yeah. Um, which is a fair trade, I think, for now. Mm, absolutely. But it would be nice to go. Well, it would have been better to have the work in there and have it clear and then you can see the work that he did have in there. I hope it was documented before they took it out of there, like to see which pieces yes, fit. Yes, you wonder it, the video. Yeah. It might be in the video. One, I'd hope so. Oh, I hope so too. It feels like this mystery and I want to follow it down. Yeah, well, you'd follow it down into the basement of the church in Hobart. <laughs> <laughs> Where you'd have to fight some kind of oh. dragon or something. <laughs> the church has got guarding it. Well, maybe not now because everybody don't see much value in it, but I'm, assu- I'm assuming that would change. Yeah, well, you would hope so. It's interesting, you know, to see this person. I wonder if you ever thought that this private, reclusive person, if you ever thought that people would be digging around in his life. It doesn't, I don't know, I wouldn't want to assume, but it feels it feels so personal. I don't, I don't know if his awareness would be on that because these days a lot of the stuff we do is for, you know, content and <sighs> information and we want to document everything we do and we're, and we're doing it and it's hard not to do it with art, like when you're creating pieces of art to think about the future of it and how it's going to live and how it's going to represent you and promote you and things like that. But if you stay present with it because it's relational, it's very intimate, it's just me and, and that. Mm in the space and afterwards it's sort of like uh, it's in the world now sort of living on its own and it's that's sort of up to it to exist a bit absolutely so i think i think it would have been very personal for him the house and everything he was doing there so i'm not sure if he was if he, if he entertained the idea of it becoming a place like wankers like me are gonna <laughs> make pilgrimages folk art pilgrimages from Hobart <laughs> and interstate to sort of see this place but that's, that's, I think that's just another little indicator of how special it is. Mm. I think it's interesting, you know, yesterday, uh, last week when we were talking, uh, you were talking about time that you spent in Canada and you were taking all of these photographs of landscapes and then you stopped taking photographs because you were feeling this removal, you were removed from that present moment. And um, now to be here talking about Leo and how immersed he was in his own life, he was obviously very present in his being. Yeah. It's interesting because it seems like you're maybe following a similar journey that you're becoming a journey, that you're becoming (laughs) more interested in being 
present as and and that is increasing as time's going on yeah especially here because I'm, I'm more capable of being focused here not being mm. pulled in social directions too often and engagements and things like that I can really like plant like live out my day as I would like to generally, like I can explore. And yeah, it's just, it is, it's just about being present. That experience in Canada was like me and my mate, Crescent, we were just literally just flying through the landscape, like shooting photos out of a moving car window, like a lot of the time, you know. We explored some amazing spaces, but we had this, there was this sense of urgency around our experience of, we had this, this constant ticking like not even ticking, it was like a an hourglass mm. of money and just like watching it go down with petrol and like expenses and stuff. And so I think it just we were trying to push that to sort of like see as much as we could in this sort of amount of time. Yeah, quickly get it all in, quickly have this experience. And like I think we were young and urgent. Mm. Now I think if we did it, It'd be slower and a bit more, yeah, like you'd be a bit more present with it. You find a nice part of the landscape, you go stay in it, not fang through it. Yeah. <laughs> like shoot, like go, 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 like shooting out of the window, like doing, literally doing drive-bys with a camera, like just all over the States and stuff. Oh. Still had it. We still had those those moments of rest and, but that, again, that was facilitated Um usually relationally so you have a place to be and stay and that and people to facilitate mm-hmm. that when you don't have it and you're on the fly it's quite difficult so yeah the, the camera was a bit of a like an extension of my experience and a bit of a, a barrier at times I think so that's what was the um the drive to even be documenting the experience Oh, just because I'd studied people. I, I really love Ansel Adams and just, like, people who explored the landscape and were sort of carting around, like, silver plates and things on wagons, like, and taking photos, like, these amazing photos of, the, like, North American landscape because it's, in, it's insane there. Like, you go from mountains and rivers to desert to volcanic areas, like, in a day to huge like redwood forests and stuff so the landscape in america is just beautiful and amazing mm. and it would have been so wild and different like in the like earlier on and that's how i think about tasmania my dad's um my dad's a huge history buff and when you know they moved here they my dad was just reading every book on tasmania and the west coast that he could get his hands on and these stories that he would tell me about how dense the bushland was. I mean, it's it's a miracle that anyone even got through. It's just horrific thinking about exploring. <laughs> like I mean, un- off so the beaten trail, like in now. rainforests here. You have yeah. to literally cut your way through it. Yeah. For months and months. You just like, it would just be hell. Oh, and, and the weather, the, the cold back then when they, they were forcing the convicts to come through and find livable, habitable spaces and oh, I, I, it actually boggles my mind that it was possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's yeah, out here it's just it's so dense and pregnant, mm. like the landscape yeah. is just and wet and... Yeah, like driving out towards Pillinger, like it just gets more and more. Like the road goes from being a big road to then a dirt road to then a very narrow road to a train line to a trail. <laughs> like it's just this, yeah, <laughs> to the point where you have to be on foot. Yeah. And it's just encroaching and eating into, like it's just this constant little battle of humans mm. trespassing usually oh, and settling and. Being what are we even doing here? Dreadful, but at the same in the same sense, we're also witnessing, and I think when it's when you enter it correctly, mm. we're just very unusual creatures with the ability to sort of, you know, sit and look at something and cry. Like, have you cried since you've been here? 
Um, I cried in the car twice driving out to, what is it, Montezuma Falls? Yeah. Montezuma. Yeah, Montezuma. That just, I don't know, I was just listening to particular songs that aren't even really that emotional that sort of triggered me. Bit of Daft Punk and <laughs> The Falls. Yeah, MGM, MGMT. <laughs> no, what was it? It was Alice in, I've been listening to heaps of Alice in Chains, um, which really reminds me of my dad because we listen to that kind of music together and it's really nice. Um, oh, yeah, because we touched on that, but I've, I've got a much better relationship now with my dad <laughs> and stuff. Full circle. Oh, thank um, gosh. Yeah, and he's really nice, you know. He Like he tells me he loves me every time he hangs up the phone. Oh, that's nice. Which not a lot of dads do. No? No. Well, I, like a lot of people have, like, you know, men. We don't have to get deep into this thing, but like a lot of blokes don't know how to communicate their emotions. I really like as we'll, to force it out of my father yeah. in uncomfortable situations. See, yeah. He was a crane driver and a dogman in Brisbane yep. City and he, he's actually, he has had a huge effect on the landscape of Brisbane. Um, and, yeah, he'd be at work and I would call him and we'd end the phone call, I love you, Dad. You too, I love you, Dad. <laughs> Surrounded by these, like, big oh, men on work sites are horrible. Yeah. But, you know, he's got it. Yeah, dads have got to say it. They've got to say it or they end up on their bloody deathbed just like racked with regret. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing for everyone. And and so if he's willingly and actively saying it, that's an important thing to note and to receive. Absolutely. As his son. So, yeah, I I, I, I haven't had any teary moments in the landscape. Like I nearly died on Mount Owen the second day I was here because I got (laughs) caught out by the weather and had to bear grills my way out of there. Um. It actually got pretty hairy, like. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was full on. But that was cool. I wanted to feel alive and alone and sort of vulnerable, and I definitely felt that. You got um, and then I got, And then I got out of it, and I got a really nice rock as well, which I found. We should probably wrap up in a minute, but um, I just recorded an episode with Chris Wilson yeah. a couple of weeks ago, and she... I mean, if you want to talk about rocks, oh yeah, her knowledge is unbelievable. I'm sure the two of you have been exploring lots of incredible places. Between her and Rory, oh. I've had quite an extensive, um, yeah, rock education, rock exposure and education. Rory, in particular, like he's still they're still discovering things that have been. Yeah, never seen before. And same with Chris. Like she discovered a fungi. Really? Yeah. It's a new species and she found it. Oh. It's like this blue thing, the blue something, something, Latin. <laughs> it's it's incredible. I think that a lot of people come through here and, you know, it, it really is like a one-horse town and you've got that main street and and people come through and I think it would be easy to think that this is a dead town, that there's nothing going on. And that, and that is that's how it looks. But then underneath it, it's just all of this, all of these people doing all of these incredible things, discovering fungi and um, you know. It's just new industry, like, and there's old industry here, and there's old industry that will fire up again. Maybe you know, if the mine gets bought again and mm. opened up again, and they're going in for copper, you'll get people, more people coming here, like industry people and like working men. And women. And then there's also this influx of artists like lurking around in here. (laughs) No, I love it because then you get that weird mix of like, that's generalizing a bit, a bit like in Signet. I used to call it just, it's just like hippies and rednecks living in like this weird kind Mm. of sort of harmony. Sort of. But, you know, at times, I think it's just important that it happens because Mm. that way both sides are getting exposed to the other. Both sides, yeah, both sides have an equal right to live and sort of explain themselves and have a voice and be represented. And I think if they live together, that those op- dueling sort of sides at times will maybe find a bit more of common ground because they're literally living with each other. Mm. It happens like yeah. that everywhere, you know. Just yeah. exposure mm. and time. And soon you're going to have 
another group of just a bunch of mountain bikers descending upon the place. So that'll be that'll be you'll yeah. have a bunch of bros drinking beers and shouting in the streets doing doing wheelies. Oh yeah, we need more of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that was something that Chris and I spoke about, not on the podcast, but uh, just a conversation one day. We were talking about um, the anti-dam stuff and uh, just that there was a, a lot of people who were against the dam and uh, the locals were, had actually put some of these greeny protesters in cages and uh, beat them. And, um, what? Yeah. It was when? pretty intense a while ago. <laughs> to cages. Not, uh, yeah. Oh my god. Which dam anyway? There's so many dams here. Um, it was the big one that they wanted to do for hydro. Uh, I think it's off the Gordon River. I can't. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm not very well versed in that, but um, yeah. So we're having this conversation about the, you know, they're coming in and profiting from the land and the landscape, and how, you know, people in town are like, oh, that's that's what we should do. And now the mountain bike trails are coming in and it's just really, it's just another form of that. We're still profiting, making profit from the land, invading the land and making a profit. Mm. It's just sometimes I feel like the left can be a little bit sneaky yeah. in the ways that they, I mean, we're talking about industry and damming the mine. They're, they're pretty upfront about what they want. And then we come in with this, oh, it's really good for tourism and it's, oh, it's beautiful mountain bike trail and where it's it's important because people need to see the land and we're preserving the land, but it's like you're doing the same thing. Yeah, you're still profiting off it. And yeah, you're still coming in and eroding things. Eroding and, and making these. Not to the same scale, but, yeah, so that's like how you manage like the impact of us. Mm. Is tricky and then how you're profiting from it and so and even with tourism here like it's confronting for people you know Rory's said like summer you can barely walk down the street and there's busloads of people taking photos of you because he looks he, he's like the spirit of the west like he, yeah. he looks like he is he's been a miner for over 30 years he's also very creative very intelligent self-educated at times man that like he's just very aware very woke dude like yeah you know he, he hate, he's not into the mining industry now like yeah. he's evolved he's an old miner and, and been a very smart in touch person that's evolved as well and then like he will walk down the street and you'll have people taking photos of him without asking like bus loads of people because he's got a big mustache and a hat yeah he has a look about <laughs> him he's got the look so yeah it's, it's that that's that stuff happens as well and that's just what no, like non-impactful tourism but it's like that has an emotional and sort of pretty heavy presence on the people that are the subject matter yes because you're taking from them yeah i'm sure how that will turn out I'm, I'm sort of into mountain bike trails i don't think they look too bad i think it opens it up you have mountain bike trails then you have like running trails you can have if it's people out in the landscape you know using like if they're running on foot or on mountain bikes like it's pretty Listen, I'm just concerned that we're asking for a serial killer. Isn't that what they do? Go up in the mountains, kill people. Every great American killer. I'm pretty sure Queenstown already has a couple of those. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Anywhere on the West Coast, yes. Um, so thank you for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. It's uh, a pleasure. Can people find you on the internet? or? Yeah, I don't have Facebook, but I'm obviously on the gram. So it's just Carl John Ross or just Carl Ross. You should be able to track me down. Okay. And if people want to find you in the real world? Um, I don't even know how people could find me. Through the through Instagram. Yeah. I guess, you know, come to Queenstown in the next couple of days and then maybe follow you out to wherever you're going next. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know how long it takes you to put this onto a platform. It'll be a while. You'll be long gone. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't need to promote anything anyway because it'll have already happened. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that's all I have at the moment. I'll get a website or something sorted out soon and take myself a bit more seriously. But, yeah, just you can email me or you can um, slide into your DMs. Carpe into my DMs. <laughs> um.
This was Local. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is produced by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Gortz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund and the Unconformity Festival. Yeah, so that's like how you manage like the impact of... For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.